Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things, friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 13 through 17 and 34 through 38. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. He said, He is a prophet. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Gerard Cashton. In the last nine months, I've had the privilege of being the pastor of Word and Table, liturgical worship in the Wesleyan tradition, which meets every Sunday at 8.30 in the parlor. But this is uh, the first time in nine months that I'm preaching twice in the same morning. I did the condensed version at 8.30, you're going to get the uncondensed version. (laughs) But don't worry, we'll be out by 2 (laughs) p.m. I need that clicker. Oh, oh, okay. All right. We can't can't do without that little gadget, right? (laughs) We have a long story in John chapter 9. Jesus healing a man born blind. Actually, the healing itself is told in about two verses at the beginning. Out of a total of 41 verses, which we heard read just only a small part. So what's this long chapter about? Well, it's a long messy, disorderly, troublesome story that we have before us. I mean, here is a man born blind that Jesus healed. You would think that there would be an upbeat, happy, celebratory story. We don't get that. In fact, even in the opening verses... The opening lines of the story, 
It starts out with a question that has puzzled many thinkers, thank you, and uh, theologians, philosophers. The disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his father and mother? Now, how could anyone sin before being born? Well, maybe, maybe there's a, a life before. I don't know what the disciples were thinking. Or maybe the parents have sinned, and so the son is reaping the consequences of their sin. Well, listen to the answer of Jesus. Neither this man has sinned, nor his parents. This blindness was not because of sin. Rather, he was born blind, Jesus says, so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, Jesus was not saying that God caused the man's blindness. Blindness just happens for a variety of reasons. But what Jesus says is this. The blindness will be the occasion for God's work to be revealed in him. So when human tragedies happen, let's never say that God must have had a purpose in causing them. Instead, what Jesus says is this. God is going to work in a marvelous way in this tragic situation. And that's when Jesus goes to work to make it happen. So what does he do? He spits on the dirt by his feet and makes mud and smears the mud on the man's eyes. That's pretty nasty. <laughs> That's messy. Not only that, but the blind man never asked Jesus to heal him. In fact, he did not know much about Jesus, if anything. And obviously, he could not see him. How would you like it if a stranger walked by you, spat on the ground, made mud, and daubed it on your eyes? And then Jesus tells him to go and wash up in the neighborhood pool. Notice he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, go wash up and you'll get your sight. No, just go and wash. He does that. And he comes back seeing. You would think there would be a great party, a great celebration, singing and dancing. No. If things started out messy, they get even messier from this point on. For one thing, Jesus was no, nowhere to be found. 
In fact, Jesus is pretty much absent in the rest of this long chapter until the very end. Where is Jesus when you need him? Jesus, where are you? I need some answers. Jesus, are you there? But all I get is sheer silence. But the truth is, Jesus was there all the time, even when the healed man was not aware of it. Some years ago, a group of us studied this book, Messy Spirituality, written by Michael Iaconelli, who was a pastor and then a lay pastor and, uh, and then a consultant for youth ministry and he founded, co-founded and owned uh, uh, youth specialties that published materials for youth work. Anyway, we went through this book in uh, one of the many stories that um, Mike Yacknell tells in this book is the story <clears throat> of Anne Lamott, who really has become a best-selling author. In one of her books, she recounts her conversion to Jesus. She uh, lived a life that... Uh, was uh, not a Christian life at all. She uh, was on alcohol and drugs, and she had an affair, and a child was born, not born, a child was conceived, but she decided to have an abortion. And about the same time, her best friend died of cancer, <clears throat> And so here she was, all messed up. One evening she went to bed bleeding and so decided to drown her troubles with more alcohol and drugs, smoked a cigarette and went to bed. In the middle of the night, she felt a presence. She felt like there was a man hunkered down in one corner of the room. That reminded her of her father who would come when she was younger and comfort her. And so she turned the light on. Of course, there was no one there. She went back to sleep. And then the next morning when she got up, Nobody was there, of course. This experience spooked me badly, she says. But I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat 
was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. One week later, she says, I went back to church. She had gone to this church, but she always left before the sermon. I went back to church. I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time, I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me into its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction. I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat and I stood there a minute and then I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath, breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. Then Mike Iaconelli says this, Anne Lamott is the most improbable candidate for spirituality I could imagine, until I consider my own candidacy. Anne Lamott seems hopelessly messed up until I remember the mess of my own life. I recognize the little cat running along at her heels. He's the same cat who's been hounding this messy follower of Christ all his life, no matter how hard I've tried. I've never been able to shake him. You won't be able to shake him either. So we might as well give up as Anne did and let the cat in. Then we can decide what we're going to do with the not so little Jesus who running wild in our hearts will wreak havoc in our souls, transforming our messy humanity into a messy spirituality. Jesus was not directly present when the healed man was going through all the questioning, but maybe he was pursuing the man like a persistent cat that won't give up. And now the man's neighbors 
go into action. Is this really the man who was blind, who sat there and begged? Can't be. Must be someone who looked like him. But the man says, I am the man. I was blind, but now I see. A man by the name Jesus put mud on my eyes and told me to wash up, and when I did that, I received my sight. They say, where is the man? And he says, I don't know. Yeah, right. Tell us another story. You would think then that when uh, Jesus does such a miraculous thing in us, it will be a bed of roses. But it doesn't seem that way at all, does it? The neighbors decide we need to take this to religious authorities. So uh, they take him to the leaders in Jerusalem. Maybe they can uncover the truth. Is this Jesus thing really true? And can we really trust this healed man that he was telling the truth? Can a man born blind receive his sight? What if he is some religious fanatic making up this tall tale about receiving his sight after he'd been born blind? Are Christians really telling the truth about their faith experience? What if it's all in their imagination? Can we really be sure that this Jesus thing is reliable? Or do Christians have a hidden agenda? That seems to be the attitude of the neighbors. So they take the man to the religious authorities, the Pharisees. Well, things are getting messier for this blind beggar who is no longer blind and will probably not be a beggar anymore. So now the religious experts question the man. How did you receive your sight? <clears throat> the man says, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. What? He made mud? This is the Sabbath. You can't spit and make mud on the Sabbath. <laughs> he must be a sinner. He's not from God. But then another group of Pharisees said, now, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So now, it's not only the healed man who is on trial, but Jesus himself is on trial, even though he is absent. But more importantly, it's the Pharisees themselves who are on trial. They can't make up their mind. Is Jesus from God or is he a sinner? But if he's a sinner, how can he perform such mind-boggling miracles? The Pharisees are divided. 
They can't decide. They're on trial. And they find themselves incapable of making a decision. Ironically, they are the ones who are blind. And that's exactly what Jesus will tell them at the end of the chapter. So they ask the man what he thought of Jesus. And he says, he's a prophet. This man was taken, has taken another step in his faith journey. Jesus is no longer an ordinary man, but a prophet. But the Pharisees were still not done. They didn't believe this man, and so they called his parents. Is this your son? Yes, he's our son. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. How then does he see? Well, we don't really know. He's of age. Ask him. Did they really not know? A man born blind and receives his sight, and they have absolutely no idea who might have done something like this? Listen to the comment of our gospel writer. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid. And that's another kind of darkness they were in. So now, the healed man doesn't even have his parents' support. His neighbors doubted him. The religious authorities doubted him. His parents are not willing to stick up for their son. The religious authorities now take another shot at him. They say to him, give glory to God. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. What they mean is, give glory to God and tell the truth. You are guilty. You are lying to us. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now, the healed man says what has become a real gem in our songs and hymns. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But this one thing I do know, once I was blind, but now I see. So how did he do it? How did he do it, they ask him. At this point, he becomes even bolder and irrepressible. He says, I already told you. Why do you want me to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Well, that's more than they could take. They were infuriated. And they drove him out. That is, drove him out of the synagogue. I wonder if this man ever thought, I was no threat to anybody when I was blind. But now that I have my sight... Now that I can see, now that I have light, everybody's against me. Jesus sure got me in a lot of trouble. I just hope and pray that we don't drive 
anyone out, no matter who they are, what they are, what they look like, how they live, what they do. What would it mean for us to be a place of hospitality to all sorts of people? It doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. It doesn't mean we have no ethical standards. It doesn't mean anything goes, but it does mean that we do what Jesus did. Jesus stepped into people's lives and ruined the status quo, ruined the blindness, ruined the darkness, and caused a big mess, and led a blind man out of darkness into God's marvelous light. If that's messy, we want it. We need it. We need that kind of mess in us. Barbara Brown Taylor. She's another best-selling author and professor at Piedmont College in Georgia. She's been doing that for 15 or 16 years. Before that, she was a parish, parish minister, uh, pastor for 15 years or so. She's often featured at preaching conferences for pastors wanting to improve their preaching skills. She pastored a downtown church for many years. The sanctuary was open during the day, but unfortunately, because of the kind of world we live in, uh, there was closed-circuit camera installed to monitor what went on inside. And the receptionist of the church checked the monitor throughout the day. One day, during a staff meeting, she walked into the staff meeting and she apologized for uh, intruding, but she said... Uh, there's a man lying face down on the altar steps, that is, on the steps in front of the communion table. And he's been there for hours. Even now and then, um, he stands up and uh, raises his arms toward the altar, toward the communion table, and then lies down again on his face. So one of the staff people went to speak to the man and asked him if everything was okay. And uh, he said, uh, yes, that he was praying. They decided to leave the man alone and instructed uh, the custodians, the sextons and so forth who work around uh, the platform and uh, the communion table to leave him alone. Well, Sunday came. And Barbara entered the sanctuary for the early service. The man was there on his face in front of the communion table. She was uh, afraid. Is he crazy? 
She approached him cautiously, noticing how dirty he was, and told him that the service was about to begin, and would he please leave? He lifted his forehead from the floor, and speaking with a heavy Haitian accent, said, that's okay. And then Barbara describes what happened after he left. The eight o'clock service began on time. The faithful took their places and I took mine. We read our parts well. We spoke when we were supposed to speak and were silent when we were supposed to be silent. We offered up our symbolic gifts. We performed our bounden duty and service. And there was nothing wrong with what we did, nothing at all. We were good servants, careful and contrite sinners who had come for our ritual cleansing, but one of us was missing. He had risen and gone his way, but the place where he lay on his face for hours making a spectacle of himself seemed all at once so full of heat and light that I stepped around it on my way out. Chastened, if only for that moment, by the call to a love so excessive, so disturbing, so beyond the call to obedience that it made me want to leave all my good works behind. The good news in the story of John 9 is that Jesus found this man. This man who had been blind but whose eyes had been opened. Then when the man was out on his own, kicked out of the synagogue by the religious leaders, doubted by his neighbors, and yes, abandoned by his parents, Jesus had not forgotten him. Jesus found him and asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in the Messiah? The man asked, and who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. And at that moment he said, Lord, Let's pray. We give you thanks, O Lord, for the gift of yourself. And as we partake of the bread and the cup, may we become bread and participate in the work of grace that you want to do through us, among us, and in the world. Bless this moment the name of Christ our Lord. In a moment, you will be invited to stand and exit to your left and come to the front and receive the bread and cup. 
come with cupped hands to receive this grace and then dip the bread in the cup and partake right here at that time you can come to the altar and spend a few moments in prayer or you may return to your seat and be in prayer the side altars the padded altars are for prayers of healing these wooden altars are for all kinds of reasons and everyone is certainly welcome to approach the table of the Lord. Let us stand. Please come. Trust what you
word and table service at the close of every uh, service. It's the table, the table of the Lord. And Dr. George Ashton leads this congregation in receiving bread and cup. I'm so grateful that Dr. Ashton has led us in these moments. It's, it is the most appropriate response as we move to time of prayer uh, to receive everything that God has for us to offer as we celebrate and give thanksgiving for his life, his death, and his resurrection. In these moments, take whatever posture you may have. You may want to go place a hand on someone who's gathered here to pray. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel where you are as we get a chance to continue to respond in worship um, to these moments that God has for us together. thankful for this blind man's word. I was once blind, but now I see. So Lord, I ask for those of us um, who've gathered in this place, who today once again uh, have said yes to you and received you, and you've gone from saying just you're a man named Jesus to our very much our Lord in a confessing way. Lord, I ask that you would take us, all of us, everything that's messy about us in your very messy way and make us followers of you. I do want to give space for you to pray for those things in your life in which you need God specifically to touch, um, whether it be for healing or reconciliation or redemption. Um, and you probably know what that is in your life, what you need God specifically to touch, something messy in your life that you need God to get involved in. Don't give us some space and some time for you to think about that thing and then invite God into your life as he waits and knocks and is ready. Lord, heal us, heal me of those things that keep us apart from you, that keep us from seeing you at work in our lives and at work in the world. Lord, there are some people as we move to a time of intercessory prayer who have come into this place with just real messy lives and it's just been a really difficult week. I've talked to people that have been in the hospital this week since I arrived this morning. I've talked to people who've been laid off from work this very week on Friday. I've talked to people who have issues in their life this morning that are just overwhelming. And Lord, they've come into this place. Their lives are messy and, and, and God, they just need you to speak peace and healing and hope. And so God, take those broken places of our lives and Lord, we pray together um, for our friends and our neighbors and ourselves who need you uh, to break into our lives in significant ways now. specific healing ways, God, we ask you would be with the healing of Stan Martin. We ask you to be with the healing of Jack. 
We ask God that you would be with people um, who've entered into this place um, who are lonely. There may be around a lot of people, but God, there's a loneliness to their moments, uh, even though they're around people. Lord, I ask that your spirit would even come alongside them even now. Lord, we pray intercession for our neighborhood and are so grateful for the ways in which you have led us in creative ways. And Lord, we ask you'd be with our outpost opportunities this afternoon. Pray for our kids club through the Cole Community Impact Organization and our Hope Academy. Lord, thankful for the ways in which you are creatively um, finding access to people in our neighborhoods that people may be reached for, for, for you. As we pray um, in creative access, Lord, we ask you would be with Jim and Kay Williams and their ministry, as well as, God, we pray for people around the world who, God, you are giving creative opportunities for your gospel and your kingdom to be spread and thankful for the opportunities you've given us to be part of that in places like Haiti and Zambia and as we've already prayed right here in our neighborhood. Lord, I thank you for your presence among us. And I ask, God, that you would shape and form us into the very image of your Son as we pray this prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. We will pray it using debts and debtors. Let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Like us on Facebook at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. Or follow us on Twitter at OKC First Church.